podcast one production. From the inside with Peter Ricks. This is part three of Peter's conversation with legendary InXS manager Chris Murphy. In this part, Chris talks about InXS riding the heights of their success and the plans for the future. I don't know that there's that many people that recognise that while that InXS thing was was rolling, that the Ruart journey was happening pretty much in parallel to it and that you, you, you had to sit astride more than one piece of uh, flying rocket at the same time. Well, it's an interesting thing. And again, I'm telling a lot of these stories, not because I, I need to, to be honest. I, I'm telling the story because I'd like to, people to, to learn from some of them or get inspired or take or not do in some cases some of the things I say. Because when I think we're in Japan within excess at the, in 88 uh, after the, I had the band on the road for 18 months on the kick tour, um, we there was one of the the band used to have this thing because I was because I was you know played ice hockey and been a, was reasonably tough in the surf I always always had them a bit scared I think and um, so what they do is they get together and have a mutiny meeting and they'd all decide like we're going to go and tell Chris we're going to do this and uh, early on in the days they came in and went we, we want that money you've you've got in the trust for us. Because this is another thing I used to do with the door deals. I used to have a rain. Well, I set a policy that if the guarantee was five hundred. That's what the band banked. Any percentage had to go into a trust account for, to buy real estate eventually. And people say, "Why are you doing that?" And I said, "Because if we don't, it, it's it's a it's a bonus. So you, you didn't you're not budgeting anyway. So take it away and make it into something else." Enix has had a huge port, uh, real estate portfolio. Why have they sold it? I still don't know. For God's sake. Uh, yeah, we used to. You know, by lots of real estate, block box of uh, apartments. But getting back to the point, mate. It, sometimes it, you should have stayed in real estate and not not kept going into well, the. If music. you see what I'm about to do next, you'll just remember me made that statement. I will. Yeah. Um, the uh, <laughs> anyway, the um, so the band got me. They'd all prepped it, and they got on a bus, and it's like we want to talk to you. So oh, here we go. And uh, uh, we want a year off. And they normally made Michael the spokesman. Like, you tell me. And they go, well, we want a year off. We've been touring for a while. We want a year off. And I said, gentlemen, if you take a year off, it could be the end of your career. And uh, Gary Beers goes, ah, oh, that's impossible. Don't you know how big we are? And I said, oh, really? I said, no, no. Do you ever watch Madonna, you two, or the artists who are really super successful? It's called Momentum. You get, and, and I said, whilst the momentum's in play, you've got your position. But once you step out of that play, you, there's room for someone else to take the place. Good. Oh, that's impossible with us. And, you know, kick was huge. I said, just make sure that you remember in this little thing up here that I said, if you go off the road for a year, you will, might not come back with the same success. So I went home and goes, oh, Great. What am I going to do for a year, right? So I was reading Peter Drucker books. Most people don't know who Peter Drucker is. He's a management specialist, uh, not artist management, a business manager. I learned a lot of my principles of marketing and business from him, Peter F. Drucker. 
he's well and truly dead now. Anyway, I think I went back and read my Peter Trucker books. I think there was a book called Manage, uh, Crisis Management. And I think I read that book. And out of that, I, I, there was every opportunity, in every negative, there's a positive. Okay? Yeah. So the negative is anything going on the road. The positive, I've got a year off. And here I am. And in the meantime, uh, a gentleman called Bob Krasnow, just before this time, had. Uh, do you know Bob Krasnow? Yes. He just passed away recently. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, was, I actually was at the Grammys. I started crying. Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't know. And I'll tell you the story. He was the first human being to sort of acknowledge me. And, and I know that sounds really weird because in Australia, we, we're terrible. Terrible. Mm. You know, you'd say, you know, what was it with the TV show? He's a great, the greatest Australian story, but uh, uh, totally captures us Australians. TV show comes out with anything says. It's 10 hours, 10, six albums in the top 10 overnight. Blah, 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 blah. Ratings, all the ratings things broken. Then we did the Sunday program. 2.7 million. Last one, the, the biggest, highest rating before that was sure. 1.7 million. And hardly anyone rang me. Mm. <laughs> my daughters were going, Dad, you're a legend. My kids are going, you're a legend. And anyway, six months later, three months later, a fellow used to play pol- a friend of mine, country fellow, calls me from Mittagong, goes, Hey, Murph. How you going? I said, Andy, how you going, you fucking knucklehead? He goes, oh, oh no, that's right. I didn't say anything. I just said, oh, how you going, mate? Yeah, good, good. How, how's you been? I said, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. He said, uh, you did pretty well that TV show, right? I said, get the, I, I just lost it. And I said, why have you waited three months to tell me that I did a good job with the TV show? He goes, don't want to get a big head, do I? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there it goes after all these years. But, but that reinvention, forgive me, but the, there's, a, there's a point where you arrive back inside that, their world, the band's world, and you'd spent a, that, that period in between building other empires, whether it's horses or polo, what, 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 the radio stations, all, all these things that your lateral brain might take on. But that, that journey of that band whilst, you know, forgive me while I just reflect here, that there is, I can't remember a more emotional live television video concert in my adult life than watching your band play Wembley um, because I'd grown up around them. I, I'm, I didn't consider them to be close personal friends, but to watch that, that night in in London, and on the TV show, yeah, because I wasn't there, and there's a difference to being live, obviously, but to be a, to be seeing something that, apart from how well it was captured, how incredibly exciting it was to to watch a band at that level of of um, skill if you like, but to be so engaged with an audience and to sit there and go, God, I remember when they were at the Carmen Carter Hotel. That's, that, that, that's, there's, a, there's a moment in that where you have to, whether you like it or not, accept that you, you're the guy who sat behind the back of the, of the drum riser and pushed them forward through that, that period. And so when it, when it finished and you know, dear Michael passed away, incredibly sad thing to any human being <coughs> but I'm you know he's a part of what that band becomes your family I, I I don't I don't think for a minute that those boys and you know it's a love-hate relationship every man, manager process, process is as I 
in some of my little notes to you, I said, you know, marriage without the sex. I made a comment about that. <laughs> well, it's different. You know, I happen to manage a, a, a woman who, who, who I definitely never want to see in, in her underwear, but, I mean, with a band, slightly different. But he, here you are, you arrive back for whatever the reasons are that you made the decision that you'd go back into the band environment and they were, I think they were lost um, as, as human beings. And well, they're I, a mess. Yeah, but I, I, I felt suddenly there was a purpose behind it all. That was something that they would never be able to do themselves and yet it kept the, the journey suddenly evolved again and the, and the momentum, as you rightly say, moves forward. And, you know, good God, we're, we're, we're in... We're in the 21st century, for Christ's sake. You know, this this thing started in 1980... 79. Yeah. 40th anniversary. Fuck. So, a couple of interesting points I just want to throw in there. Again, uh, money shouldn't be your, your first priority in this, in this business, any business, actually. Wembley I, uh, was a setup. A lot of people don't realise it was actually called Summer XS. And I had nine support bands who all had hit records at the time. So, and because the band came back on the, mm-hmm. back from the break with X, which was a good album, Suicide Blonde was great, there's some good stuff on there. I was also worried about what the market... Anyway, so I needed to set up something. So we set up this show at Wembley with a great promoter called Tim Parsons, English promoter. But I also, as I got close to it, I thought, God, this, this is a big moment. This could be that moment, like that moment. Made it probably was. So I went to Polygram and said, can you give me a couple of hundred, quarter million dollars, whatever it was to film? Anyway, I, but I, on the 11th hour, literally the day before, like day before the show, I was sitting in Polygram Films. So whatever fee we got out of that, I threw that into the filming and that's how I got the filming done. And there's a famous story where John goes on stage and starts... Doing guns in the sky. I don't know if anyone's. If you ever realise, I don't know how many bands have done this in the time. In excess, went on stage to seventy-eight thousand people, and they, and and they, and they just um, uh, jammed. Sorry, I lost the word there. Jammed into their first song. If you, I watched it. I had to do a speech at a film uh, place in Adelaide once, and they said, "Oh, we'll put Wembley on." And I'm sort of sitting there, and I'm going, this is 20 years later or something, 25 years ago, these motherfuckers jammed into, into the show of 78,000 people. How big were their balls on the day? Anyway, so John goes out and starts just doing this thing and Gary jumps on to the thing and they're jamming and then the rest of the guy come out and Michael's standing there and he looks around the curve and he goes, sees all the people and he goes, how much are we getting for this? And I went like that and he goes, you motherfucker. I said, it's, going, I said, it's all going, we're filming. I said, mate, there's 12 cameras, 35 mil and a helicopter. What do you want? So... And that was a famous thing. And actually even the band tell the story now and go, God, at the time we could have killed Chris. We, we, you know, what was he doing? But now look at the legacy that we've got. And the other interesting thing about what you just said is that when I had my first conference call with the production company to do the TV show, there was writers and producers, I can't remember who was on the other end, and they're all going, uh, oh, look, uh, we'll start the, the, the thing in the band in the desert with Aboriginals and uh, no, we'll start it with the fire, it's, you know, the Michael and the, and the police and the sirens and the, and the headlines and oh, we'll do this. And I would just listen to them for 20 minutes and, and I said, listen, guys, I'll tell you how we're going to start the show. We're going to start the show at Wembley and we're going to finish the show at Wembley. At the end of the day, what I didn't, we didn't have social media and I never bragged. 
like most bands did. So most Australians don't know how big in excess are. And if you come straight out of the X Factor or, or, the, or the voice, whatever, which was part of my condition, I didn't think in excess, I was too scared to take any excess to free to air. I wouldn't do any, all the movies I got offered, I wouldn't do it because you had to sell tickets. I didn't have enough confidence. They, the, the, there was enough heat in the market. So I kept them out of anything there's any pressure. So anyway, so um, the people in Australia will, if you, sorry, when you put that, as soon as that, if you put that show straight after whatever show that's playing before, and it was hopefully going to be X Factor on seven or Voice on nine, they will have two options. After that, you know, they announce that person who's not going to be seen in a couple of days who's the winner. I want no commercial break. I go pop. It's got to go straight into Wembley, and the, what you'll hear, like a like a round pin drop, like around the lounge rooms of Australia, going, I had no idea they were that big, and you rest my case. And well, I, you also see a real band. Yeah, you go, well, yeah. You go to shit into real band. Yeah, yeah. That's so we great respect to. So. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, so I was telling the story of money. Invest, invest, you know, that's what we did. We invested in Wembley and now when I watched even we – we, we did a presentation the other day, yeah, and I was watching it and, um, and I, was, I still look at it and go, God, they were, they were so on. Yeah. Thank God, praise the God that we've got that because all these band, poor bands had to go around and do hundreds of thousands of arenas. It's just dating inside. just did a couple. <laughs> But, you, you know, because <laughs> I, I, I genuinely, whether, whether that has the impact for the general public is, is an, another conversation, but to, to see that, it just looks like it was yesterday, mm. Chris. And then you, you end up with that reinvention of the band that arrived out of the back of the television specials and whatever the, the, whatever is in the back of your fertile brain as you roll it now forward, there's so much legacy built into this band that is, I, I think you underestimate the relationship between the Australian, the general Australian public. But you always did put a line in the sand between you and how the rest of the music business saw what, what how, how to do things, haven't you? Yeah, actually it's funny, so when I... Uh, just uh, I think it was after TV show because no one knew what I was doing, even the people who worked for me. No one. My d- kids didn't even know what I was doing. I, I, I had my laptop for like five years, literally. As I said to someone, um, I said I said it was like I was like a, 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 an old miner that you know the gold mine uh, they the, they left it to dry. <clears throat> Everyone's walked away from it because I think there's no gold. So I go it went down with my little miner's cap with a little chip thing, and I just kept chipping away until I found gold again. And so now I'm now I've come up to for air, and now and now uh, that's what I've been doing in my laptop. So yeah, it, it was great. It was a very uh, look, but it just goes back to when I when the band. It took me a year to decide basically that I'd come back to the band because. You know, when Kirk rang me the first time, um, uh, standing in a veranda, my one of my farms, and my farm, and and he said the story about the album, and I said, look, I will consider this on the on one condition. He said, what? That you never call me manager again. I am not your manager. I don't want to be your manager. I did it once, and that's it. If I do this, it'll have to be in a different capacity. Um, and but I'll think about it. So 
I did what I do normally. I jumped on a plane and went around the world and listened, kept my ears open in all these places I went to where Enix has been played. Shops, you know, blah, blah, blah is the brand. The brand was pretty dead, to be, to be honest. It was, it, was, it was down and out. And I even had to remind to uh, Andrew and Tim were at my place the other day and Andrew was, I, I showed these guys these new projects that are coming and, and, and Andrew said to me, I hope Andrew doesn't mind me saying this, he said, I feel like a bystander of my own music. I said, you are. And he goes, no, but, you know, I mean, really a bystander. It's so frustrating. I said, Andrew, maybe you forgot the, what the conditions were. When you asked me to come back, I sat at Kirk's place with you guys and said, I'm not your manager. And I need you around for five years because the fire's just about out and I've just got a little amber and I don't have enough breath to blow, keep that amber going. I need you around to help me blow the amber, just to keep it alive until I, until I get some traction back into the market. Mm. I said, it'll take me five years <clears throat> to get to ground zero. And I said to you, guy, all of you, once after that five years, you can all fuck off and read about yourself on the internet. Don't you remember I said that? So you've got to just leave me alone to do what I'm doing and just come to the opening nights and you'll love it. I Trust me. So, you know, but the, the other thing is I had to really, qu- I mean, geez, the agony I went through because I thought, oh, this is great. You know, a lot of people don't know I had, you know, I was shipping organic lamb into Tokyo. No one knew I was the first free-range organic chicken, uh, a free-range chicken farmer in Australia. No one knew I created Black Mountain organic lamb. No one knew that I did what, you know, all the foodies and all the chefs knew and all these people. No one knew that I'd had 350 number one hits on iTunes. No one knew that I sold, uh, they had the biggest selling classical album on iTunes in 2000 and, uh, 2005. No one knew that I'd done this documentary in Cuba. No one knew, blah, blah, I can go on. Mm-hmm. And I had created 13 radio stations. No one knew that I bought 2SM to get a digital radio license, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I thought for a lot of people, if I step back into this music business, for a lot of people, I've just been I've been in the black. And you've been up, up on the farm. Yeah, and in excess, I retired from in excess 95 and in 90, 2009, he comes back to be their manager. And I even had someone, I can't remember who a prick was, rang me up and said, oh, you're going to put them back in the clubs again, Chris? And it's like, I'll give you the fucking clubs. <laughs> and uh, so, but I was frightened to death that if I, if I, of looking like, you know, those guys that boxes that come back and they've got too much weight and they yeah. get their head kicked in. I thought, I'm not coming back. I was once a world champion. I'm not going to come back and get my head kicked in, you know, to end the, the, lose my own personal dignity. So I had to come up with a very clear strategy to work with and I knew I had to have the balls that it was going to five years with no money again. Uh, I had to put my other businesses, I put my other businesses aside um, and... I'm going to have to go flat out on this because I have to work my guts out for five years and before I just get it going. And, and, the, the, and what I came up with is that one thing I've learned outside the music business, but the music business doesn't understand yet, is brand, the word branding, a brand. Lucian Grange now says it all the time. Uh, Sir Lucian, sorry. And, um, and some people are starting to say it now because we're bringing people from the outside of the music business in. So my concept was I told the band, I'm going to convert you to a ba- from a band to a brand. You'll have to stop touring very soon because that's you being a band. And I just need to um, uh, have this brand in my hands 
And I, my guarantee to you is I will make you, your brand bigger than what you were as a band. And mm. I went, <laughs> So when I got a call once and said, oh, the best I've just gone five times platinum, I rang uh, Louise, who was in the archives, in our archives, in the shed, and I rang her and I said, Louise, we had an office there. I said, can you go into the archives here, walk around all those albums, see if you can find any albums with five with discs on it. And she came back about half hour later. She said, no, there's only four. A kick, uh, four times platinum in Australia, four times platinum in America. No, no fives. So I said, so the last time in Australia, in excess, on the highlight of their career, kick, when everyone bought CDs, we had four times platinum. And we've just hit five times platinum. I must admit, I sat there and had a, a, a little smile. And go, I just made the brand bigger than the band. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks, and this is part three of Peter's conversation with Chris Murphy. In a moment, they talk about the plans for the future for Chris and for NXS. The story isn't over just yet. Is there a, I mean, without telling me, because you've inferred it a bit, but, but there is a 10-year plan here or a five-year plan for you? Oh, the next, well, for me... Uh, you, you as a human being now. Oh, look, I think, um, I think about 2020 will see me see me out. Uh, this sh- live show I've come up with, I've told people quite regularly, this is my swan song, and everyone said, no, 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 it won't be. I said, no, this, this idea is so good. This show is going to be so big. It's so successful. I can't repeat it, and I don't want to. So I'll just take that, and my kids can go along, and that'll last for, you know, as I told the guys, this is stuff that'll... My, my objective wasn't to put out an album with another best of. Um, or do another tour. I mean, CAA was on the phone to me yesterday going, Chris, do you know how much money you can make now with this brand in, in, in America? He said, Come on, let's do it. I said, no. Mm-hmm. There's no money in the world that can tempt me. And, uh, and he said, when? I said, mm, I don't know. Hopefully never, but who knows? But it won't be, it won't be, whilst these other projects going, the documentaries, the, the musicals, the archives, all these things we're doing have to be, they have to be unraveled first. And the band understands that even though that's someone's dangling moolah in front of them, that they're willing to take that... that, that they that. don't know people are dangling moolah. What do you think, I'm crazy? I'm not going to tell them that. <laughs> Hope they're not listening to this then. <laughs> um, I think they've got to learn and know me by now. But... Um, well, see, I don't tell anything, anything, anything until the ribbon. As I told, I reminded the boys the other day, uh, I, I said, I don't, I'm not going to tell you anything until the ribbon is tightly bowed, the, the bow is tied. Yeah, yeah. Because if you would have followed my transition to get this musical going, and I told you every call, every meeting, everything went on, and everything time went up and every time went down, you'd be in, you, you guys would go insane. You can't handle these sort of ups and downs, so I, and it works well. I mean, Andrew Farris watched the Never Tear Us Apart with his family on the, Saturday, on, the Saturday, on the Sunday night for the first time. Really? The band saw it, most of the band saw it on Friday before it went down on Sunday. That they were not a part of it? No, Tim Farris, what, what we did is I nominated, I saw, again, I did a bit of research, I saw the documentary with Beatles Love with Giles Martin, the yeah. music director, in, with Cirque Soleil. And I watched this documentary and there was Yoko and the ex-wife, the girlfriends, the brothers, the sisters, and my God, the poor director, how he even got it made. Mm. You know, there was all of them telling everyone what to do and I went, you know what, 
if I ever get to that stage, it ain't going to happen. We're not going to have five guys, their wives and girlfriends, all sitting and their kids and they're telling a director what to do. So when we got, when I got the, uh, I, when I got the, when I signed the band to Murphy Theatrical for the stage rights, uh, you know, musical rights, just, you know, um, a part it's in the contract that, that Tim Farris is the representative. Um, on the uh, for he's a contract for the band, and it's exactly what I did for the TV show. Tim was my executive co-executive producer. Tim went down and sat there and, and did all the hard yards with the musicians. He taught them how to be rock stars, um, and and that's what we needed. I, I mean, look, you know, I remember Tim calling me one day, coming all the way to Richmond, pulling out a pack of cigarettes. We didn't really smoke that much. He said, "Can I have a cigarette here?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, can I have a cigarette?" He said, "Have you read the script?" And I said. Yeah, I read the script. It scared the shit out of me at first. Fine, I didn't even know I was in it. Uh, that wasn't uh. part of the deal. When I first got the script, I was, ah, like this. And I said to my daughter, actually, I said, uh, when this TV show comes out, I'm moving back to England. And she said, why? I said, the band are going to freak out that I'm going to be, this manager's going to be exposed because everyone thinks it's six people. No one really knew it. There was, there the, was the seven. Seventh, yeah. And uh, she said, oh, don't be stupid, Dad. And I said, anyway. Anyway, so I had to took me actually my daughter Stevie. I gave her the, uh, series one. I said I can't, don't think I can do this. I think this is just this television stuff. I can't do it. So I gave the script. She opened a bottle of red, and uh, my daughter's by the way thirty and thirty. She's yeah. not got a seven year old daughter. <laughs> opened a bottle of red, rock and roll. And uh, anyway, she's reading long. I said I'm going to bed now. I went to bed. I went and woke up in the morning. She slept in, and the bottle of red's gone. I think she drank another half of one or more. And I woke up and she goes, "Oh, I got a hangover." And I go, "What, what are you doing?" So I, I couldn't, I couldn't go to, I couldn't stop reading the script. I said, well, "Good or bad?" And uh, and I said, I don't think I should be in it. I'm not really worried about it. And she goes, I'll oh, get over it, Dad. It's just TV. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and I actually went to the, I actually went to into the, to see the producers, and said, you've got to take me out of the script. I feel really uncomfortable. I just, it's just not me. It's not, it's not my job. And they said, if we take you out of the script, we're not going to do the show. And I said, why? And I said, because Michael's the, the drama in front of the camera, and you're the drama behind the camera, and we need drama. We're making a drama, so that was all. That was an interesting experience. But all, but <clears throat> as I said, you know, we got that made. Oh, sorry. So yeah, that's when Tim said to me, "Do you do you realize? Have you seen the script?" I said, "Tim, I've already been what you're going through." Okay. So what you got to remember, we're not making a documentary. We're making a TV series for primetime television. It's mm-hmm. not a documentary. So just get the documentary thought out there. We've got to keep the facts as much as we can and keep it a true story. But at times there's, there's going to be some fairy floss to, you know, whatever it may be. The um, don't know where all that started from, by the way. <laughs> uh, 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 the legend that evolved out of the back of that tacks onto the onto where the band finished at Wembley and a little bit after that and it um, th- that journey and your journey are extraordinary things. You, uh, th- They might be legends but so are you. Um, thanks for coming in. Nice to I talk. I thought that might be the end. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Well, at, 20, at it, 2 hours and 14 minutes CM... We're, we're, we're late for, the, for, the, for your next appointment, I'm sure. Oh, that's right. In the next episode of From the Inside... Peter speaks to legend of AM radio in the 70s and then of FM radio in the 80s and beyond, Rod Muir. 
From breaking through a new wave of programming on Australian AM radio in the 70s to the launch of Triple M on FM in the 80s, his work has left a legacy that still lives on to this very day. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.